0: Thank you, Kendra, for that ministry in music. Turn with me, if you would please, in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you've not turned there already. In the opening chapters to the book of Corinthians, Paul is defending his apostleship. And he moves from a defense of his apostleship to explaining... What motivates his life of service? Why does Paul do what he does? In Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, we have what is one of the most succinct statements concerning God's plan in redemption. What was it that God was accomplishing... When he sent his son to die, even as we just uh, heard sung this morning. If you look at Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, it says, He died for all. The day who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Paul's explanation... For why he does what he does is that it is God's design that Paul would no longer live for himself, but live for Christ. This design is true of every single person who's a child of God. That God intended that we would no longer live for ourselves, but live for God. So, Second Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. Why? Because he is no longer living for himself. He is living for God. Verse 18. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. In what way are we reconciled to God? Answered, a right relationship to God has been restored, wherein we are no longer living for ourselves, but we're living for God. And we take this message to others, so that they would no longer live for themselves, but live for God. All described in the word reconciliation. So how does this reconciliation come about? Answer, through Christ, verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. God's design in the atonement is to bring us into a right relationship with God. Jesus reconciled us, brought us into a right relationship with God. In order for that to occur, two things Had to happen. First, sin had to be addressed. And then, secondly, an enablement to live for God and not just to ourselves had to be imparted. So, today we're going to look at the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement, meaning that Jesus died in your place, he died in my place, with the idea of asking the question well, how does that? actually work how does that transpire the theme of this morning is that we're going to take a close look at the doctrine of imputation to better understand and reinforce the acceptance that we have with God because of the death of the Lord Jesus how we have been reconciled to God not to live for ourselves but to live for God this morning as we think of this holiday weekend I decided I wanted to to focus on what is the the kernel of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and then begin to expand or work out from that kernel next week as we look more fully at the doctrine of reconciliation especially as we think of communion. But before we can do that I, I think we really need to be at Ground zero. The most basic elementary doctrine as it relates to the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And the word for that is imputation. And so this morning we will look at the doctrine of imputation. It's introduced in 2 Corinthians five nineteen to 21 Starting with verse 17, it says, If, there is any, one, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting King James, uh, excuse me, New American Standard. If you have a King James that says not imputing their trespasses against them and he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating us, we beg you in behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be become the righteousness of God in him. So reconciliation and imputation go hand in hand. But we want to look specifically of this doctrine of imputation this morning, and it's not the first time I've done this. In fact, uh, Uh, A good part of this will be review if you've worshipped with us for any period of time. But again, it's so foundational that I don't think we can say these things often enough. As we think about this doctrine of imputation, the uh, core or central verse is verse 21. He, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. There is the essence of imputation. There is a twofold imputation or counting that is spoken of in 2 Corinthians 5:21. Our sins are imputed or counted or credited or applied to Christ, and in turn, Christ's righteousness is imputed, counted, credited, or applied to us. And I think we can better understand what it means that Christ's righteousness is applied to us by first looking at how our sins are applied to Christ and the design and purpose of this activity. So, first, what does it mean that our sins are imputed to Christ? Notice verse 21. He, that is God, made Him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf. First and foremost, We need to understand that Christ in his person was totally without sin. That's found in these simple words in verse 21. He made him who knew no sin. Jesus did not know what it meant to sin personally. He never experienced sin personally. He never committed any sin. Jesus was personally without sin. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Jesus knew what it was to be tempted but he never yielded to that temptation. He never sinned. Jesus was without a Sin nature. Jesus was not born corrupt. Jesus was not born sinful because of the virgin birth. Because of the virgin birth, he had no sin nature. For John 3, 5. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. There was no sin nature. David said in Psalm 51, in sin my mother did conceive me. Not so the Lord Jesus Christ. He was fully or completely sinless. Secondly, it is said concerning Christ that, quote, He was made to be sin. Made to be sin. So, in what sense did God the Father cause Jesus to be made to be sin? He was not made to be sin in the sense that he intrinsically became a sinner, meaning that he himself behaved in a sinful manner. Jesus did not act sinfully or personally commit sin before, and now here's the key, or after our sins were placed on him. Our sins, the Scripture says, were placed upon Jesus. But Jesus did not personally begin to commit sin once our sins were placed upon Him. Jesus did not begin to curse and swear and rebel against God the Father once our sins were placed on Him while suffering on the cross as a sinner, Jesus Christ Himself did not commit any sin. Listen to the words of First Peter. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, and it's talking about, the time upon the cross, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Not only did Jesus not sin while on the cross, Jesus actually continued to live righteously. It says that when he was reviled, He did not utter any threats. Not only did Jesus not utter any threats when He was on the cross, but positively He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Rather than act sinfully and want to hurt those who brought these accusations against Him, rather than wanting to retaliate or get even, instead, He is praying Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus, instead of rebelling against God on the cross, instead of being angered with God on the cross, instead of going contrary to the will of God on the cross, says to God, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. I submit myself to you. Into your hands I entrust Myself. That's what First Peter means when it says, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. He kept entrusting Himself to the Father. Into your hands, O God, Your will be done. Whatever that is. So, He acted righteously. Righteously. So, when it says that He was made to be sin, it doesn't mean that he became sinful himself. So what are we to understand by the words, he made him to be sin? Well, it is that Jesus was treated, regarded, looked upon as a sinner by God the Father. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That is, Jesus stood in a place of condemnation. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. It was God the Father who placed our curse on Jesus. He, God, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Isaiah 53.10 But the Lord was pleased to crush Him Putting him to grief. It was the will of God, the Father, that Jesus pay the penalty for our sinfulness. Thirdly, it is said that he was made to be sin on our behalf. Meaning that our sin, with all its consequences, was placed on Christ. Jesus took our place of condemnation on our behalf. King James, to be sin for us. NIV, to be sin for us. The idea contained in the preposition 4 is that Jesus became sin in place of us. Not merely with us in view, but in our place. The consequences of our sin were placed upon Jesus Christ. The punishment... That he bore was our punishment. He was made to be in our place. The condemnation was our condemnation. Isaiah 53, 4. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. First Peter two twenty four. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's the first half of imputation and I think that's the most commonly understood element. That's why we started there. So, Jesus though himself sinless though himself never committing a single sin was treated like a sinner by the Father because he was bearing our guilt, our shame, our condemnation, our sin. He was treated as a sinner in our place. So, in a similar manner to our sin being imputed, accounted, credited to Christ, Christ's righteousness is imputed or accounted or credited to us. For we are totally devoid of righteousness, just as Christ was totally devoid of sin. There is a Direct parallel. Jesus never did any wrong. We never did any good. Now that sounds like that might be an overstatement. Maybe we're willing to say, well, you know, we're not perfect. But isn't it a stretch to say that uh, we didn't do any good? Look at 2 Corinthians 5.19. Namely, that Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. We were devoid of personal righteousness. Listen to the words of Isaiah 64.6. Probably most of you know this verse. But it says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That means the best of what we have done. All our righteousnesses, all our goodnesses. The best of what we have done in God's sight is like a filthy rag. It's unacceptable. It's unworthy. Even our best actions are tainted by sin. There's a measure of pride associated with it. There's a measure of self-interest That is associated with it. Even in our best moments. We are not motivated 100% out of a love for God and a love for others. There's always a taint. Sometimes a huge taint. Sometimes a minuscule taint. But always a taint. He was completely righteous. We were completely devoid of righteousness. To become is to become something we were not. We were not righteous, but Jesus, just as Jesus was not sinful. Verse 21, he made him know we sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ's righteousness was placed on us in the same manner that our sin was placed on Christ. Just as Jesus bore the miserable consequences of our disobedience, we bear the wonderful consequences of Christ's obedience. Just as Christ, the sinless one, bore our sin, so we too, who are without righteousness, bear Christ's righteousness. God provided that righteousness in the person of Jesus Christ. Look at the end of verse 21. That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In Christ refers to our union with Christ. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. In relationship to Christ, we become righteous. Christ's righteousness is placed on us. It is not just the obedience of Christ's death is imputed to us, but the obedience of His life as well. You see, we sinned. He bears the consequences of our sinfulness. He was righteous. We bear the outcome, the reward, the consequences of His Righteousness. He provided what we lacked. See, two things happened. He had to pay the penalty. But he also had to supply what we lacked. He had to pay the penalty for our sin. But there was still the problem of the fact that we were void of righteousness. So, he provides us with his Righteousness. His having lived a sinless life for 33 years on this earth. For His willingness to go to the cross. For His commending His Spirit unto the Father. For His loving God with all His heart and all His soul and all His might. And His loving His brother as He loved Himself and gave Himself for us. We bear His righteousness. Christ's righteousness is placed on us in the same manner that our sin was placed on Christ so that we might stand justified just as Christ stood condemned. You understand? He was condemned not because of what He had done. He was condemned because of what we had done. We are justified or declared righteous not because of what we have done. We are justified and declared righteous because of what? He has done. There's a balance to these things. Just as His condemnation came not as a result of any sin that He committed, so too our justification does not come as a result of any righteousness that we provide. Just as Jesus is innocent, man stands condemned. We who are guilty stand absolved. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God with Him. Christ being personally without sin did not keep God from treating Him as a sinner. We understand that. Jesus being without sin did not prevent God the Father from treating Jesus as a sinner. So too, Our being void of righteousness does not keep God from treating us righteously because of Jesus Christ. Stated positively, we are at peace with God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Stated negatively, we will never experience the wrath of God. Romans 5, 9. Much more than being now justified by His blood, you'll be saved from wrath from Him. So, we have no condemnation. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. We get that much. But today, I want to take this a step further. Because this is essential to our passage. And that is what Was the design? What was the purpose? Why was this transaction made? Why was this plan devised? Well, let's go back to our verse again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. namely the Christ was in, that uh, God was in Christ, reconciled the world Himself, not counting their trespass against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we are begging you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Verse 21, He who made Him knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now, I want to show you the only place where this parallel breaks down. It's found in verse 21. Where in verse 21 it says, He made Him to be sin. And it says in verse 21 about us That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. God had something better in view than simply the fact that we would be treated as righteous. Something better in view. The better in view is, not only was it the design of the atonement to make it possible for us to be reconciled to God to be treated as righteous. But the purpose and design of the atonement was to actually make us righteous. That we would become righteous. It wasn't the purpose of God to make Jesus unrighteous, unholy. And so when He hung upon the cross, He didn't become sinful. He was treated as sinful. But he didn't become sinful. But, we on the other hand, not only are treated as righteous, but we actually begin to become righteous. That's why, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are becoming new. Why? Why? Because we've been reconciled to God. We've been brought back to God so that we no longer live for ourselves. We live for Him. We have been transformed. And the most notable way in which that is accomplished is that when we know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to Indwell us to make us a holy or righteous people. There are a few things that I say repeatedly with the hope that there are a few things you will never forget. And you may he, he, tire of hearing me say this, but I feel like I can't say it enough. The word holy, the Holy Spirit. The word holy could be applied to any member of the Trinity. We certainly can speak of the Holy Father. And we can speak of the Holy Son. But most often we speak of the Holy Spirit. Why? It's a descriptive title. It is because the main activity of the Spirit of God in our lives. Is to produce holiness in us. He is the Holy Producing Spirit. He is making you and me holy he is changing our lives he's opening our hearts he's opening our minds he's changing our intellect our emotions and our desires so that we are beginning to crave the things that belong unto god he has truly brought to us a healing a reconciliation you think about a marriage and i'll be here next week when i talk about reconciliation but you think about a marriage where two people are brought back together Now, living together to accomplish that which is best for their family. Now, we have come back together in our relationship with God, seeking to accomplish that which is best for God's family. He is about producing holiness in our lives. So that through Christ's death, we have more than simply a right standing with God. We have been reconciled to God. We have been brought back to God. So that we would no longer live to ourselves, but live for Him. 2 Corinthians 5.18 Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We see in the abandonment of Christ the Father, our complete acceptance. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Next week we are celebrating communion. We're going to celebrate our reconciliation with God. But what I want you to see today is that Paul is explaining to the Corinthians what motivates him. What drives him. Why he does what he he does in relationship to to God. And he said in verse 15 that he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but live for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And Paul simply puts in verse 14 these thoughts. For the love of Christ controls us. Some translations, the love of Christ compels us. That love of Christ is Christ's love for us. Notice verse 15. Who died and rose again on their behalf. It's Christ's love. Paul says, Christ's love compels me. Because what God did is instilled within our hearts Christ's love. Christ's love for the Father and Christ's love for his people. That is the righteousness that he is producing. Remember, the essence of righteousness, the first commandment, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your soul, and all your mind. And the second is like to it, love your neighbor as yourself. The love of Christ compels us because He has given us a love that has changed where our affections take us, changed where our desires take us, so that now they are focused upon God. That is the design. That is the purpose. That's why Jesus died on the cross. Not simply to take away our sins, but to make us righteous. Reconciled to Him. So that we long to be with Him and one day we'll be with Him forever and ever and ever. But it starts with that doctrine of imputation. My sins placed on Jesus. Jesus' righteousness placed upon me, but with a twist. Jesus' righteousness placed on me so that I would actually become righteous. Jesus' righteousness placed on you so that you would actually become righteous. Righteous. No longer serving self. Serving Him. That's the essence. That's, that's the rubric. That's the basic element of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sins are forgiven. And you have been transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, thank You for Your Spirit at work in us. And uh, Lord, uh, we thank You that through His death, He can bear our sins, and through His death, we can bear His righteousness. Not just positionally, but actually subjectively, that we can start to act righteously, because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, because of the design and the purpose of God. So, Lord, we ask that You might work out Your purpose in our lives, and that we might become more and more righteous, bringing honor and glory to Your name taking the message of reconciliation to others. For you have committed to us that word of reconciliation even after we've been reconciled to you. Thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.